Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on June 20th, 2013. The theme for the night was Insults and Injuries. Our next storyteller is an economy student and a runner. Please welcome Greg Salveson. I'm an astronomy student, which is much more fun than economy student. Okay, um, so in 2010, I decided I would take a crack at my second marathon. Now, I had done one before, and it, it really didn't go quite as planned. I mean, I, I wound up actually standing in a shower in the Estes Park boys' locker room for an hour, butt naked, having my friends check on me every now and then to make sure I didn't, you know, fall over. I was just exhausted. So I figured, let's try it again, and it can't possibly get any worse. Now, when I was searching for a marathon to do... Um, I found, I found this particular race called 24-Hour Around the Lake, and there are a few reasons it was appealing to me. First of all, it was in uh, Wakefield, Massachusetts, which is like 20 minutes from where I grew up, so that was nice. It was uh, a night race, which I thought sounded neat. You know, it started at 7 p.m., and another thing that was, that was just nice about it was, you know, my whole family was going to be there. Um, and my friend Eric as well was there. Now, the, you know, so I go out for this race, and all it is, you just run eight laps around this lake, all right, on the sidewalk, which sounds really terrible, and it, it was sort of really terrible. But the other nice things about it outweighed this terribleness. Now, this is also when I kind of first discovered the world of ultramarathons, um... So there, there were three races. It, it, there was the marathon, which was the wussy race. There's the 12-hour race, and then the 24-hour race. And these people just run around fucking lake for 24 hours, right? On the sidewalk. Now, I mean, in 24 hours, you could, you could watch all 13 Land Before Time movies <laughs> and listen to every single studio, studio album ever put out by the Beatles. It's true. So I thought these people were nuts at the time. But anyways, this race kicks off, right? My, my parents are there, and my friend Eric is there, and you're just running around on the sidewalk. Now, when people run for 24 hours, they're really slow, all right? So I'm just passing them all. You have to run off the sidewalk into the street, around cars, back onto the sidewalk. And it's not like the sidewalk's closed to, you know, baby strollers, and no one... No one who's out on an evening walk really knows what's going on. You know, they're just there, and there are all these people running. Um, and, you know, you run by people as you pass them, and you lie to them. You say, you look great, even though, you know, sometimes they're struggling. And uh, anyway, so I, I go around seven times, all right? And, and there's, there are two what are called aid stations, all right? Um, there's an, and, and all an aid station is they've got a ton of food, and water and electrolyte drinks, stuff like this, right? And there was one at the start-finish area, which is where my parents and my friend Eric were. And there's another one at this gazebo, 
um, about a mile before you get back to the start-finish area, okay? So now I run, I, I, I get to mile 25, so I have one more mile left to go with this marathon. It's going pretty well, all right? And I, I, I see the gazebo, and I, I'm feeling great. I'm like, I'm going to finish this strong. Now, I go to pass somebody, uh, and, you know, he's, <laughs> I th he must have been in, like, the 12-hour, 24-hour race because he was going very, very slow, and he was wearing those, those like, lemur shoes, the five fingers, right? And I, I go to pass him, and I look over my shoulder to make sure I've passed him, and as I'm coming back on the sidewalk, I turn my head and smash my face first into, like, face first into a pole, all right? Because a night race... And, and, okay, it was a street lamp pole. I'm not sure how I did that. And, and I don't recall the light being on. But anyway, I smashed my face into this pole, and I sort of, you know, it's like what I imagine getting punched in the nose is like. And I sort of stagger back onto the sidewalk, and I, I actually trip and fall forward and scrape up my knees and bust my chin on the ground. And then I get up, and I'm like, I, I'm just very, a very stubborn person. And I say, I'm going to just finish this. I've got a mile and believe it or not, I stagger off into another fucking pole. <laughs> and this one sort of takes me out. And I, I crawl. <laughs> and somebody saw it. I, somebody saw it. And, and I crawled off into the grass and the dirt by the lake. All right? And so now I'm covered in blood and sweat and ants. Because there are ants everywhere. And I'm just covered in ants. I'm just laying there. It's not good. And somebody at some point, like, found me or came up to me and said they had called an ambulance. And, and I was trying to insist, I'm okay, I'm okay, let me finish. And they're like, no, 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 you're, I mean, you look terrible. You're done. And, and thank you to whoever that person was. And the EMTs show up and, you know, they ask, there, and, and at this point, I feel kind of embarrassed, actually, because I'm kind of back with it, you know. And they ask me, like, did you black out? And I lie to them. I say, no, no, I'm fine. You know, I'm just telling them I'm fine. And, uh, and, and I say, look, I'll just walk to the ambulance. Let's just go. Come on. There. No, we need to put you on the stretcher and bring you there and make a scene of it. Like, okay. And, and actually, at the point, my legs hurt much more than my face hurt because I'd been running really hard for a little over three hours, and then you're forced to just lay down flat. And I just cramped up. It was not pleasant. But the, EM, the EMTs were nice, and we get to the hospital, um, and we show up, and, I mean, I didn't have to wait at all. <laughs> it was great. And, uh, you know, the doctor sees me, and... and I, and, and the EMTs told me, this is a detail I'm remembering now, they told me that I was the first person they ever had who was totally covered in ants. I mean, there were quite literally ants in my pants. <laughs> or my little short, short running shorts. You know? um, and, okay, so I see the doctor. I remember asking her, like, do you have a mirror? I just want to see what this looks like. And she's like, yeah, mirrors in the ER, that's a bad idea. And so she, she rubbed me off. Uh, with these like really thick wet wipe pads. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to like, I, you probably haven't. I hope you haven't. Anyways, they're, they're these like really thick wet wipes that they just rub you down in. They got all the ants and the blood and the sweat and all that off of me. Um, and I was so impressed by these that she actually gave me a package of them <laughs> for, to take home, which was nice. Um, 
But anyway, so in the meantime, so I'm in the hospital, okay? In the meantime, my parents and Eric are waiting at the start-finish, and they should see me any minute now, right? Even if I walked that whole last loop, I should have been there. And they're like, what is going on? And so my dad, and so I heard all this secondhand, right, because I was in the hospital. So my dad uh, drove around the lake slowly and was just looking for me, and he, never, he didn't see me, right? And then they went to the race director, the guy who's in charge of everything, and they asked him, you know, do you know what happened to this guy, Greg? Did he finish? Can we just not find him? Is it crowded? I, I don't know. And he said, oh, the mystery runner from Colorado who put down Mickey Mouse and the White House phone number as his contact information. So I, I never thought I'd actually need to use emergency contact information at a race. But it turns out that was a really jerk thing that I did. And it caused a lot of trouble for this race director. <laughs> so anyways, you know, they find out, oh, he's in the hospital, blah, blah, blah. So they go meet me at the hospital, all right? And my dad, I, I remember my dad thinking this was quite funny. Like, he, he had a, a fun time with this. My mom was worried at first, and then she came into the emergency room, or, or wherever I was. It was like, I, I don't know, I was in some room. And my mom used to be a nurse, so she's just getting really excited. She's like back at it. And she, she, actually, she actually asked if she could stitch me up. I said, no, you can't stitch me up. You know, that's the doctor's job. And, and we sort of, she, she finally just like settled down. And the doctor uh, took care of things. And I wound up, I wound up getting uh, eight stitches, like where my, and they charge you by the stitch. That's how I know. And, and it was like right where my nose intersects my eyebrow. So unfortunately, I can never grow a full unibrow anymore. And uh, they, they had this, like, super glue stuff. And they glued up my nose and my upper lip and my chin and, and sent me on my way. And, uh, I mean, and so that was that. And then the next, the next night I went into Boston with some friends of mine. And they just, you know, like, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> um, but um, anyway, so this was, uh, I, I got much more into running after this. Uh, this was in 2010. But I, I've never done another race with a pole. I got much more into trail running, and uh, in 2011, I ran my first ultramarathon, so that's like two years ago, and since then, I've run 19 ultramarathons, seven, seven of those were 100-mile races, uh, one of which I just finished this last weekend, uh, and there's a whole lot of hurt that comes with that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I could go into story and story and story, but like the, just, just it's a very different uh, feeling than a marathon. I mean, for instance, I, I completed what I call the trifecta or the three Ps at the Leadville 100-mile uh, race this last summer, which is number one, which is a good thing, right, peeing, because it means you're hydrated and everything's going fine. Number two, pooping, which is not... A good or bad thing, except if you don't pull your shorts down enough, you can accidentally pee into your shorts while you're pooping. So that gets bad. And then three, of course, is puking. And, I, and this, ha this is just sort of like a regular thing. Uh, and people puke all the time at these races. Uh, but yeah, so this, this, the funny thing, you know, this marathon was the only race I've ever run that I didn't finish. Thanks.
astro-economist Greg Salveson. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. Our next storyteller is a favorite of the show. She's been on the show more times than anybody, uh, and we are happy to have her back. Uh, please welcome playwright Ellen K. Graham. All right. How's that? All right? Look at it. One, the strawberry patch. First, you surrender the inside of your forearm. In some cases, your arm might be immobilized, but I never knew this to happen. The lessons of the strawberry patch depend very much on the social compact between aggressors and aggressed. You surrendered the inside of your arm and the story began, a story of a farmer in early spring getting ready to sow his crop. First he tills the field, a voice would say, in a cheerful storybook tone as the index finger marked parallel furrows down the length of your arm. Then he plants the seeds, careful, evenly spaced pokes down the length of your imagined furrows. Then the rain falls. This was the best part, the gentle drumming of fingertips on the sown seeds. If you were lucky, it might rain again before the seeds sprouted and the flowers bloomed and eventually the fruit began to form. Then the strawberries are ripe. The storyteller's fingers would then exact tiny, precise pinches at regular intervals inside the inside of your arm. The perfect form for the pinches was to seize the flesh not between the pads of the fingers, but between the fingernails only. This produced sharp little pink-red asterisks that didn't resemble strawberries so much as bright baby spiders. After about 20 minutes, the marks would fade. In my case, the storyteller was my older sister, circa 1980. I don't know whether the strawberry patch was her invention or if it was one of those inexplicable phenomena that sometimes swept through Bradley Elementary School like friendship pins and sucking on pieces of paper soaked in red-hot cinnamon oil or lining up along the west wall of the building and letting other girls press gently on our necks with the heels of their hands until we lost consciousness. Either way, my sister was a master. It was sort of painful, but not unpleasant, and there was something magical about being the sole focus of my older sister, who is very focused indeed. Two, broken toe. My sister was a varsity soccer player. Once someone stomped on her foot so hard it broke her big toe. A huge greenish-black bruise blossomed over the top of her foot, and eventually the toenail fell off. She took a photo of her toenailless foot and gave me a copy. My sister ended up being a scientist. The strawberry patch spotlit many of her defining qualities. She is methodical. She is creative. She has a clinician's stoicism around blood. She spent one teenage summer while most of her friends were doing things like hostessing at Chili's in a lab at the VA cutting the fat from rat testicles. This calmness in the face of gore manifested early. When we were about 8 and 11, our parents made the rookie mistake of getting us pet rabbits. We named them Munchkin and Annis. The pet store assured us both rabbits were, were females, but one morning Annis birthed the litter of tiny blind baby rabbits and proceeded to partially cannibalize a few of them. Our mother, erstwhile country girl, feminist, Girl Scout camp counselor, asked if we wanted to view the aftermath. I declined. My sister accepted and soberly examined the carnage like a head of state touring the wreckage following a national disaster. 
Annis the bunny was returned to the pet store, and Munchkin lived a few more unhappy years before being unceremoniously murdered by the neighbor's Rottweiler, who tore through the metal mesh of the rabbit hutch late at night at the very same moment that I sat in my movie theater watching Fatal Attraction. But that's another story. Three, dislocated knee. I was not a varsity soccer player. When I was 15, I was standing in the journalism classroom when my left knee popped out of its socket and I collapsed to the floor. I remember the way the displaced bone grotesquely distended my fishnet stocking. I was standing stock still when it occurred. The only plausible explanation was that I was being punished for the fact that not one hour earlier, I had been not only ditching, but also trying methamphetamine for the first time. I did not become a scientist. In fact, in college, I made a decent stipend as a research subject in an anesthesia department of a big university hospital. I would show up once a week, and a charming intern named Priya would insert a catheter into the back of my hand and shoot me full of opioids. I would then play computer games that evaluated my short-term memory. At regular intervals, I would have to plunge my left arm into a cooler full of ice water for three minutes and take a survey to assess the pain I was experiencing. On a scale from one to ten, is the pain stabbing? Shooting? Radiating? After a few hours, Priya would unhook me, give me a blueberry muffin, and bundle me into the back of seat of a black Lincoln town car, which would convey me back to my apartment. Four, the ugliest girl in the eighth grade. To return to the strawberry patch, it was pretty much the gold standard for inter-sibling aggression. I understood my sister's resentment of me, spoiled and useless, so dependent on her to inflate the tires of my bicycle, buy my lunch ticket, communicate on my behalf with any other adult other than our parents. The strawberry patch offered a means of sublimation of my sister's resentments and my guilt for being cause of same. This alchemy, whereby judicious abuse of the body cleared the mind, was something I experienced again as a teenager when the vision of sneering Dave Newman loudly proclaiming the ugliest girl in the eighth grade, or when a carload of lacrosse players called me a slut, which was truly bizarre, so I was pretty much a nun in a motorcycle jacket, and threw a big gulp at me from a moving car, could be magically vaporized by a few little cuts to my inner arm with a dismembered safety razor, or in the sweaty scrum of the mosh pit. Five, cancer. When she was in her early 20s, my sister was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma. She had to have surgery on her upper arm to remove the melanoma as well as a certain portion of the surrounding skin. The doctor, learning of her scientific leanings, asked if she would like to assist him during the procedure. She agreed and watched calmly as the surgeon excised the cancer with a scalpel and dropped the chunks of flesh into a basin she held with her opposite hand. In the meantime, I was still in college and taking a quarter-long class in the English department entitled Blood, wherein we learned, among other things, that the scene in Dracula where von Helsing breaks into the crypt is actually a metaphor for anal sex, and that illness or injury is pretty much everything but physiological. A less-than-perfect body was a moral failing, a possession, a punishment. Learning of my sister's diagnosis, I wrote a poem called cancer poem, with a stirring closing stanza wherein I contemplated the undisturbed topography of my own body, wondering whether cancer was lurking in there somewhere. I think I used the metaphor of a water moccasin sluicing underneath the surface of the water. My sister tolerated the poem, but stated, for the record, that cancer was really just abnormal cell growth. Not long after that, I dislocated my knee again, this time while trying to do a hula hoop. Six. Whiplash. When we were in our 20s, my sister and I were rear-ended by a truck hauling a trailer on I-25. 
My sister was driving. We were stopped in the middle lane with heavy traffic at a standstill all around us. Just before the accident occurred, there was an excruciating long moment where all we could hear was the furious screaming of brakes, and we turned and looked at each other, waiting for the impact. Seven, the worst play I've ever seen. Last fall, I had a play in a theater festival where an audience members rated the plays they saw on a scale of one to ten. After each show, the writer sat in the house while audience members discussed the play and cast their ballots. I sat with a frozen smile as a guy with lamb chop sideburns and Rick Moranis glasses and too tight white t-shirt clinging to his saggy pecs said, that was pretty much the worst play I've ever seen. And then the bearded guy in the back complained that after one of the characters in the play fainted, the other characters had failed to follow appropriate emergency procedures. It devolved from there. I had a few defenders, but the atmosphere in the room had turned against me, and I became resigned to the fact that the evening would end with my direwolf's head affixed to my lifeless body. The following day, I was really depressed, and the only person I wanted to talk to was my sister. After listening to my recap, she stated, I think that you'll find, if you review the votes, that rather than a bell curve, there will be a bimodal distribution. That evening, I raided the ballot box after the performance, and there it was, a series of zeros and tens, just as she had predicted. The humiliation of the previous evening was purged, and I felt the sort of euphoria that only statistical analysis can bring. (laughs) Eight, broken toe. In April, I was running into the house barefoot, and I stubbed my toe on the concrete step by the back door. A lush black bruise formed, and my toe swelled into a cylinder shape like a plump link sausage. I immediately took a picture and sent it to my sister. She responded immediately with sympathy, yes, but also anticipation, saying, do you think the toenail's going to fall off? (laughs) For me, one of the core truths of sisterhood is feeling like something has not happened unless my sister knows about it. Telling her something is the proverbial pinch, the one that tells me I'm not dreaming. She is the knife that cuts away the rotten parts and reveals the true shape of things. When we were children, the rage and the love were intertwined, competing desires to either destroy each other or to occupy, possess, protect each other. My flesh was hers to pinch, her hair mine to pull, her faults mine to mock, my weaknesses hers to exploit, ours and ours alone. We stood arm in arm in the doorway of our hothouse, bruised and defiant, daring anyone else to lay a hand on us. Thanks. Ellen K. Graham. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about The Narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.